being sort of a customer first, product first, company first mentality versus a them first mentality. I still see a lot of founders who, who have massive egos and who started their companies because they wanted to be a founder and because they wanted to have a startup. And whenever you interact with them and whenever you see them uh, out in the world, you know, they're very sort of self-centered, right? And it's, and it's, it's about them. Hey, Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Robbie, thanks for having me. Um, we were just discussing um, that this is a unique situation. You're someone that got booked in through an outside agency that reached out to us. And that makes it seem like you're a power podcaster. Uh, have you done this a lot? How's that been? I, I've, I've been on a few podcasts, yeah. Um, and I used to record one for my product firm as well, so I've been on the hosting side too. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been fabulous working with them. Um, there are so many podcasts now that, that it's impossible to um, sort of keep it all straight and to manage the communications around which ones you're talking to and which ones, what's the timing. And so, you know, they, they've helped us with the logistics around getting scheduled uh, to talk to people. And so it's been, it's been a very good experience for us. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, going back to that, like what um, generally our podcast guests are first timers. And uh, we're like introducing the world of podcasting because we deal with a lot of early stage companies. Um, you're someone, you know, who's been around the gambit, like a bit uh, based off your bio and your history. What do you see in the power of podcasts? Yeah, I think that that it is. Um, well, for me, I think the ones that are the most interesting and the ones that are the most valuable are the ones that are the most conversational um, podcasts that are too scripted, sort of too clinical become a little bit too robotic and, and, and not in, interesting and, and dynamic enough. And so I think the mm -hmm. best podcasts are the ones where it's two people getting together to have a, a conversation and then letting the conversation sort of evolve and go wherever the conversation should. Um, so to me, those are the most interesting ones. And the reason I think podcasts took off is because it gave people the ability to have access to a conversation between two people that they otherwise never would have access to, right? And mm -hmm. so... You know, I think that um, it's that it's the fluidity of, of two people talking about something that, you know, someone's interested in um, that, you know, makes it an appealing platform. And, you know, I think, you know, with Clubhouse and some of the other stuff that's now, you know, on on the horizon, you know, is podcasting going to stay what it is today? You know, who knows? Right. I mean, mm -hmm. podcasting might even look very different, you know, two or three years from now than it looks now, either from a tool perspective, a distribution and sort of delivery perspective, or maybe even sort of a construct of how a podcast, you know, happens and what the you know norm of, of a podcast sort of context and content is. What I'm fascinated by is uh, this growing community, right, of uh, people who, who inter interconnect by voice podcasters and the guests that go on them. Uh, one of the interesting things is, is most guests don't start their own podcast, even though they might go on many different podcasts. Are, are you in that community? Do you, are you more a frequent guest or do you have your own podcast? Yeah, more frequent guest now. We still do a podcast for, for my product firm, AWH, but, and I recorded that and hosted it for probably two years and then mm -hmm. and then handed the baton to somebody else on the team who's now doing it and frankly he's doing a much better job with it than I ever did so mm -hmm. that's also good affirmation right that that you 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 know pass the baton appropriately um, so the the hosting piece is is I think it's just different I really enjoyed the hosting piece because I've always believed strongly that you, you demonstrate more expertise by being able to ask really good questions than mm. providing really good answers. And so I, I very much enjoyed the process of, of trying to come up with good questions and to facilitate an interesting conversation with someone. And I think that skill is highly underrated because it's not, it's not easy to, to facilitate a conversation for 30 minutes or an hour, right? And yeah. so I, I think it's I think it's different skills and it's a different perspective. Um, but yeah, I guest on more now than I do host because I'm not hosting hours. And it, it's um, I think it's just a different you 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 wear a sort of a different hat um, when you're when you're hosting versus guesting. And I think that 
I think hosting's actually harder, frankly, because you can come into a guesting situation like like this, mm-hmm. and I'm sort of just ready to go wherever the conversation takes it, where you had to come into it saying and thinking about, okay, what, what trajectory do I want for this conversation? Yeah. So you you came in with having to have some a little bit of thought and preparation. You know, I, I sort of was able to just, you know, show up and put on a headset. Mm. Yeah, um, th- that you're, you're completely right. But uh, I actually see from the opposite point of view. I feel like I have the, the lucky job because, um, you know, one of the reasons that got me into this is that I realized I consume content because I'm curious. Questioning allows me to ask, the, you know, is the, is the jump the queue. Instead of waiting for someone else to ask uh, or trying to search for people who have asked the questions, I can ask the ones that I want and, and, and take that there. So um, I think, like, if you're an innately curious person, that just makes this, this job kind of easier. And for me, I just get a blast learning from like, people like you. So um, I, I would love, Ryan, I would love to get a little bit into your past and history because it seems like, uh, you know, you, you've had a, quite, a, quite a story there. Could you give us a quick bio history of, uh, you know, catch you up to your current self, like what you're, what you're doing now? Yeah. Um, so, and, and everything you said was code for I'm old, uh, at this point, uh, which, which is, which is okay because it's true. Um, and so I, I I've been a part of, of building several software products and companies over the year. Some of them went well, some of them went okay. Some of them were abject failures and, and, you know, we, we just, you know, did everything you could possibly do wrong. Um, and, and screwed it up along the way. So I've lived the experience of, of it going well and it going not so well. Um, and surprisingly and, and even disappointingly, some of the failures were after some of the successes. So it actually taught me a really important lesson that success in one, in one area with one product solving one problem for one set of customers has nothing to do with solving a different problem with different customers in a different market with a different product. And, and so you, you, I think we often sort of look at it and say, well, if you figure out the formula with one product and one company, then just take those same principles and take them over and port them to, to something else and, and it's likely to work. It doesn't really work that way. Uh, I guess it would in theory if you were building a similar product and company in in a similar industry right yeah. but even then I, I i now question whether that's the case um and then um uh, 10 years ago i joined uh the product firm i'm not i'm at a partner now called awh and so we build software products for for clients from startups up to enterprises i've written two books working on a third um i speak at conferences about building products and and company leadership and that sort of stuff and um part of, of launching a nonprofit workforce development program to help underemployed adults uh, become software developers. So I've, one of the things that I've, I've become relatively good at over time is the ability to sort of recognize opportunities and then, and then to have enough discipline to then dig in on those opportunities and at least take a run at making them work, including you know, digging in to write a couple of books and, and speaking and then, you know, the nonprofit stuff. So um, I, I now also believe that it's better to be opportunistic than strategic initially and then to get strategic inside of opportunities because I see a lot of people who, who are very strategic, they're very well planned out, they're very thoughtful, they can create a, a deck that will, you know, um, knock your socks off. And, and and then you realize, well, they're doing all of that and it's not inside of an opportunity. So it's almost like effort and thought and energy that is inconsequential because it's not directed at anything. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And, you know, from this conversation, what I'm trying to gather is, uh, do you fo- focus more on the product side, follow the more product side of development, or are you on the sales side? What intrigues you more? Yeah, it's interesting. I used to be more on the product side, um, and then I shifted over to sort of the business side, mm. and now I sort of straddle both, and I typically have one leg in the product side and, and one leg in, in the sales sort of business development marketing side. Because mm. um, I, I think we've also crossed several thresholds over the last few decades around, around building products. It used to be that writing robust, scalable code was everything, 
right? Mm -hmm. We valued the technology because we were just figuring out what was possible. And then we entered into a design era, which we realized, okay, writing good code is just sort of your ticket into the game. And, and we had the epiphany that, well, if you're gonna build a software product, you ought to be able to write good code. And then we realized that we undervalued design, we undervalued user experience, and we undervalued user interface. So then we went through a decade of design where design became the thing that, that we, we sort of gave the most credence to, um, and wisely. Now I think we're entering an era where it's gonna be a given if you can't write good code and you can't design a user experience that's simple and elegant, you know, you shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't be doing it. And now we're entering an era of marketing and distribution and product-led growth and sales and figuring out if design and development are just tickets into the game, then your ability to drive awareness for your product and to acquire customers is really the new sort of, uh, of pinnacle of whether your product is going to be successful or not, because we have to assume you're going to design something that's good, you're going to write some good code, then it becomes, well, goodness, how do you commercialize it? And commercialization is all about sales, it's all about marketing, it's all about customer acquisition, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what you do, um, you know, starting this line between sales and product, uh, you know, I think it's one of the, the hardest uh, aspects uh, of um, uh, um, of the cycle, right? So this is where entrepreneurs kind of live and die in. Um, some of them are really get, good at getting a product and build product, but can't get, jump the, the the hump and get into sales. Others are really good at sales and can pro get some pre-sales and, and, and maybe even sell things off of like a deck or two, right? But then struggle getting the product made. And the matches are made in heaven when two people of like, you know, these two skill sets, like a hustler and a... Uh, and a hacker can kind of come, come together and work on, on, on building companies ground up. You know, we're more of a, you know, this podcast being more of an entrepreneurship, um, you know, startup focused, right? Um, that is a skill set that's so rare to find, right? So can you talk us, walk us through about honing the skill set, about being able to talk to product teams and uh, understanding how, uh, you know, the product is made and the engineering side of things, how to uh, operate that, you know, that skill set versus the sales knowledge of understanding what the customer wants, because those two don't communicate really well, right? What the customer think they want and how it gets built are t oftentimes completely two different things, two different conversations to have. Um, so, you know, bridging that gap, right? What are the skill sets you had to gather? Yeah, it's hard because you're sort of talking about a unicorn, you know, human being, right? Because you're talking mm. about equal, equal parts, left brain and right brain, right? Mm. Um, and, and that's tough, and, and a lot of people aren't equally equipped, right, from both an analytical perspective and sort of a creative perspective or a human dexterity perspective. Um, and I just wrote a blog post you know, uh, talking about this a little bit, and, and I think the title of it is called Shipping and Shopping, because the other place that, that uh, entrepreneurs find themselves and founders find themselves is they often have to be building the product while they're out shopping the product to investors to raise money. And so th they're, they're one foot in the product, right, development role, and then they're one foot in the investor communication. And, and trying to raise money is a sales process, right? Talking to investors about them investing in your company is a sales process. You've got a pipeline of potential VCs and investors, and you've got you know you've got to track sort of the progress with them and your communication, you know, et cetera. And then you've got to react to what are they saying, what are they asking for, right? And and that dexterity inside mm. of that conversation, and it's hard because founders, you know, for better or for worse, have to be the first best person at their company for a handful of roles, right? They have to be the first best product manager, the first best salesperson, mm -hmm. the first best controller, the first best marketing person, right? Um, and that's that's a lot of hats to wear, that's a lot of pressure. And, you know, frankly, most people aren't cut out for it because it, it, it being a good product person is often much different and requires a different skill set than, than being a good salesperson and, and so, a lot of founders don't succeed at it. And I, I, I think the only way to sort of get good at one side, at the side that you're the weakest at is if you're sort of, if you're good with interpersonal skills 
and you've got some sales potential, right? Then what you probably need to do is on the product side, you probably need to force yourself and you need to be more intentional about being much more disciplined, much more planned, right? Much more methodical. And, and if you're more of that sort of a person, then you need to get intentional about increasing your EQ, right? Your ability to have, um, you know, conversations that are empathetic, you know, with, with customers and your ability to uh, be engaging and to become a good storyteller. I think if there's one commonality for founders who are good at product and good at selling is they're good storytellers, mm. right? Because on the, because a, a great piece of product management is storytelling. Where's the product going? You know, what's the narrative around the product? What's, who's, who's the antagonist, right? What problem are you solving? And your product's sort of the protagonist about how you're solving it. And then the customer, right, is sort of your, you know, who you're serving is sort of the hero and the protagonist inside of this. And your ability to work that into the product management and then to work that into the sales conversation is critical. So I think storytelling sort of goes across both sides of that spectrum. And storytelling is something that everybody sort of initially goes, yeah, I could be a good storyteller. <laughs> until they figure out the fact that storytelling actually is a skill and has yeah. elements and components to it that you just, most people don't wake up, right? And aren't born naturally good storytellers. You have to be intentional and work on the craft of telling a good story and being a good storyteller. Yeah. So here's, here's what I uh, gather from that. And I completely agree with this. Like, uh, I think what you're, what you're, you know, the base of the saying is that, is that if you can communicate to people at a, at a baser level, you know, like the, the, the lower in the brainstem, by, but the, lower down in the, bra the, the brainstem. I got cotton melt, sorry. So if you, if you, um, you know, talk about stories uh, in, in that way, it's, it's a deep, you're reaching a deeper part of a person's consciousness, right? You're, you're reaching a deeper part of them. So it's like you're not trying to learn all the nuances of the language of an engineering person. Um, or, uh, or a business developer person on the other side uh, when you're doing sales, right? And trying to learn the nuance of what they need. What you're rather telling, or trying to figure out is how can we communicate a united vision, like a, a base level point where of what you need and what you want, what you want to, what you want to build. Um, I, I love that kind of idea because again, that, that's even a rare skill, right? Be able to tell stories. But this goes back to this idea of like, how do we train for people like that? Because our our, our modern society doesn't actually, you know train us to become storytellers to be able to talk about this. We, we train for engineers. We train for like linear thinkers, right? Um, you know, the power of story is becoming more and more prominent now, especially in the voice, uh, in, in the era of voice, right? Where podcasting like this is easy, Clubhouse is easy, and things are easy, right? Storytelling is very different from, you know, the, the, the other forms of communication, right? Um, anyway, so I, I, I agree with you. That I, think, I think sales is moving into a storytelling kind of mode. Right, where instead of you going to the person and being uh, linear and saying, "Hey, this is your problem. This is our solution. This will be do a, a, a equals uh, a plus b equals c," um, you know, you get together and tell stories about what uh, what futures you can build, what problems you can solve, how you can solve these kind of issues, what you've done in the, in the past before, and how you know how you want to build by telling the stories of how uh, how things could be. Uh, you kind of attract people um, uh, to come and work with you. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, sales ultimately is a, a, a customer has a current state. And then what you're selling them is the vision of a new reality. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's your ability to, to connect the dots between their current state and the new reality with your product in place mm -hmm. that determines whether they're going to buy or not, whether they're going to see value. Um, you know, a lot of salespeople um, even inside of demos, like de demoing a software product, they forget about connecting those dots and the storytelling piece. And then it just becomes a click through of, well, then the product does this and it does this and it can do this. And here's how you configure that. And here's how you select that, et cetera. And, and they just go through the motions of demoing the product. That's not sales. That's not storytelling. Storytelling in sales is I'm going to show you this function in the product now and here's how this fits into the grander scheme. And here's how this relates back to the outcomes that you want to drive as an organization and the problem that you said you want to solve, right? And so continually through the demo of a product, reinforcing back to the business outcome and back to the problem, 
most salespeople, when they demo software, it's just let me click through this, let me get mm. through it as fast as possible, don't ask me any questions. And then at the end, right, I expect that you're gonna sign when all they did was, was you know, do a bunch of clicking and a bunch of moving around and there was no, there was no relatability of what the product does to what the client wants their new reality to be if the product was in place. <laughs> yeah, um, I completely agree. So, like, I, I think like the the modern internet, the web uh, 4.0 is now like changing uh, sales, uh, just like you know the internet changed before, right? Like previously, a salesperson could be completely ruthless, rip somebody off, and then you can move on to the next client if you want to, and it's very little repercussions because. The reputation scores don't follow you, right? You can join another company, you can start another company, you can do all these different uh, shady maneuvers. But the internet has kind of changed this, right? Where reputation follows you on the internet now. Um, you know, if uh, you know if, if people know you as somebody who doesn't deliver, or misperforms, or misrepresents, that's gonna get out through reviews and uh, customer channels and 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 uh, behind behind conversations, right? So the internet has made us more wholesome when it comes to delivery and product, right? Uh, it's it's shifted away the uh, I, I guess uh, a lot of the, um, the 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 uglier sides of uh, of, of sales and, and and capitalism. I feel like it's making us more organically uh, focused, where we're actually coming together to solve common problems and issues. And the products and technologies we use to do that is just a part of the sauce of that, right? So I feel like the internet is turning people into like these digital tribes, where we're solving problems together and like these virtues are, are together, and we're connecting over those problems and uh, transacting through uh, what we can do. Yeah, I agree with that. I think sales has gone through a, a significant evolution because sales, you know, historically has been has been about interpersonal relationships, right? We we used to buy things from people that we knew, like and and trusted, right? Mm. And that's still true. Those fundamentals haven't gone away, but there's and certainly as a result of the pandemic too, there's a there's a lot less relationship building as part of sales, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why I think storytelling has become so much more important because mm -hmm. it used to be that you could, you, you know, you, you would jump on a plane to go see a high value prospect, right? Somewhere and, and get the conference room for a day and do a demo and bring in lunch, right? And, you know, and all of this stuff. And, you know, that, that rarely happens anymore. And now it's about how do you, through micro interactions with a prospect, begin to develop trust and credibility in a way that's very different than it was 10 years ago. And how do you, you know, weave the story, right? So that the prospect ultimately ends up coming to the conclusion of wanting to buy what you have versus you having to pull them through, through an aggressive sales, you know, sort of, of process. Um, mm. Cause I think we've also, you know, much most sales training over time has been about you know, command and control, right? That someone is in control of the sales process. It's either the buyer or it's the seller. And most sales training has, has, has you know, positioned it that the sellers need to get control of the, 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 the buyer through the process. I think that all was, was bunk, right? I, think, I don't think that ever worked. I don't think that was ever good advice. I think it's, you know, even less so now, the buyers are in control and the buyers are probably more informed than most sellers are. Mm. And so it's not, it's less about a seller having command and control over a sales process. It's more about how does a seller facilitate a, a customer getting the information and the context they need for them to make an informed buying decision. And to, for me, that's all about good storytelling. Right. And it's all about contextual awareness of what's the buyer trying to accomplish, what's their current react, what's their current state and what do they want their new reality to be? And then how do you facilitate that happening? And it's more of sales being the first level of engagement with a customer versus a sales process that then equals an in, in, engaging with a customer. I think sales is actually the first stage of engaging with a customer. Mm -hmm. OK, so. Uh, I love that because you, you just took what I said and, and compressed it into like uh, <laughs> into like this uh, easy to clear kind of guideline steps. It's like sales has changed and storytelling is now the, the methodology. But how do you deploy this? Like what is a strategy that a, uh, a, 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 a startup CEO 
or like a someone who's new to that uh, new that new to that role, like a VP of sales, or trying to build out a structure for them for their new company. What does that look like for the, in the modern age? Yeah, I think for founders in particular, they've got to be able to. Um, <clears throat> I think it, take their take their pitch deck in a way, right, and and be able to say with customers and prospective customers that it tell the same story they're trying to tell to investors if they're raising money, right? Which is, what's the problem? Why are we capable of solving it? What's our solution look like, right? What's the path mm -hmm. to that, right? And all of that, because those are, the, those are the principles of a story. Those are the principles of the story of the company and of, of the, the, the founder. Um, I think founders also need to get really good at uh, being sort of a customer first, product first, company first mentality versus a them first mentality. I still see a lot of founders who who have massive egos and who started their companies because they wanted to be a founder and because they wanted to have a startup. And whenever you interact with them and whenever you see them uh, out in the world, you know they're very sort of self centered. Right. And it's and it's it's about them. The best founders who are the best at sales and the best storytellers make it about the problem first, the customer first, the product first, because then they get really good at telling that story. Because if you as a founder try to inject yourself into that story of, oh, here's what I did. Here's what I discovered. Here's what I've done. Right. No one cares about that. Customers don't care about it. Right. And and founders need to keep their ego in check put the other things first and then they have a better story to tell because it's less about them and it's about every other thing that actually matters way more than them inside of the the context of trying to build a company and and take a uh, take a product to market mm -hmm. you know, so this is one of the things that um uh, like you know we're dealing with as a company as well right uh, storytelling is like is is bringing us options and opportunities and, and things are, are frameworking but in this kind of a framework right um uh what i'm really interested in and, and following is how machines are becoming involved you know productivity tools and all these uh, tools uh, have uh, have made it so easy that all, all our data is now uh, accessible in different ways right whether you you know go on um, uh, through our through podcasts or through clubhouse it would be voice technology or our notes or our meeting calendar stuff like that there are now machines that can read these uh, and uh, and augment our work right we can now you know for like uh, for normal sum uh, like a founder can uh, you know uh, buy buy into a SaaS technology that will allow them to reach out on LinkedIn for them as if it's them right you can have these bots kind of like automated uh, web flows that kind of work for you. Um, Naval Ravikant calls it the, the age of knowledge workers. So just like the information age made information workers, people being throughputs for information, um, the, the, the AI age is allowing people to implement uh, knowledge in, 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 a, in a high depth environment to create scalable solutions. So the job functions are changing to the point where now, from the founder levels, uh, from founders to CEOs and to executives, uh, you more work as knowledge workers, where you think about how do you build scalable systems rather than um, just you know uh, be information throughput, uh, like command and control. So, when a, in a growing company, um, I, I believe more executives are thinking about okay, how do I how do we build automated systems and processes that kind of run uh, run automatically, and we can remove, remove myself from them and go on to work on other problems. It's becoming more and more of a job facility. Um, do you agree with that? Uh, do you do you see that happening more and more? Yeah, absolutely. And I think startups now are um, more so than ever. A, a a startup is a product in and of itself. In, in that, how a, how a company operates, the systems a company uses um, are a product. I saw a, a COO of a startup, um, you know, quoted where, and, and he said that his job was to treat the company as a product, right? Mm. Of how does information yeah. flow through the company? Who needs to know what, when? How are they collaborating, right? How, you know, how are they communicating? How are, how are they evaluating where there are gaps, you know, and, and where there are friction points, right? And so, yeah, the operation of a company 
is in itself a product that someone has to pay attention to and someone has to care about and someone has to understand. Um, and that's a, and that's a big difference between startups and most enterprises. Most enterprises are over-systemed, over-tooled. They have competing systems and tools, right? Even inside of the same departments, right? And, and sort of business units. Um, and so th they get over-complicated and startups have a really good opportunity because they're just building their infrastructure mm -hmm. to treat the company as a product and to leverage some of these new technologies to operate more efficiently. And that's how you can see a company that's, you know, that's worth, you know, a couple hundred million dollars or even a billion dollar valuation. And then you see that they've got 13 people, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it, it, and we wouldn't have thought that was possible 10 years ago. Um, but it's possible now because they can leverage a bunch of these platforms, technologies, and tools and operate like a 130 person or 1300 person company versus a 13 person company. So founders do need to think about their companies as a product in addition to the actual product that they're trying to commercialize. I love that because um, you're absolutely right. So the, the now, especially founders, uh, the knowledge base you need to build is how do you build on top of the existing platforms and interlink things. Oftentimes, the newest products are not anything drastically new. They just built on, on, on top of a, they just layer a bunch of technologies together in new and fascinating way. Like Clubhouse is built on uh, uh, like a few, like Angola, the, the Taiwanese company, I think, right? Like uh, it provides most of, most of the, 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 the infrastructure base. And um, the clubhouse is, is like built like a client on top of that engine. So like, you know, uh, you know exactly what you said, right? Like uh, the knowledge is, is shifting to that kind of point of view, right? So how, how do you keep in touch with this? How do you, how do you, how do you um, exercise this muscle of knowing what technologies or how to, uh, you know, build things and put them together? Yeah, f you know, for, for us, we, we pay attention to a lot of stuff that's um, happening from a technology perspective, a product perspective, the intersections of the two, um, and also from sort of a usability perspective and a customer experience perspective, because, you know, ultimately, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the intersection of all of those things, you know, matters, and it's not just getting wrapped up in a particular technology, you know, blockchain mm -hmm. got really hot where every company on the planet was was looking at blockchain to figure out well, how they could leverage the blockchain. Um, the the reality is blockchain's applicable when you have distrust and, and uh, or someone who's anonymous on at least one side of a transaction, right? If not both sides. But if you're if you're somebody like you know one an automaker and you've got a, a part supplier that you've done business with for 20 years and and you, you want to put them on the blockchain it doesn't make any sense you already know who they are you you know what the transactions are you can apply sort of a, a unique identifiers to the transactions right there's no implementation of blockchain there that actually makes any sense because there's trust inside of that transaction and so we saw a lot of we saw a lot of companies trying to take something like blockchain and and sort of bastardize it to figure out well how are we going to leverage this new technology when there the, the, when there wasn't an applicability for it. Hmm. And so same things happening now with machine learning and AI. I saw an insurance company that built an Alexa app so that you could and this is the most ridiculous thing i've ever heard of um they built a, a, an alexa app so you could ask alexa for a daily insurance tip of the day now who in the world wakes up in the morning and thinks oh i i really want to know more about insurance and i want to ask alexa for an insurance tip of the day right nobody so just because it's available and you can do it doesn't mean that you should and and to me that's not that and it was it was classified in as, as innovation that's not innovation right because it, it if 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 it's not adding value and if and if a customer right isn't going to engage with it to get value out of it all, you're just you're 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 just tinkering and you're doing something that is just leveraging technology for the sake of technology that doesn't have any business value and doesn't have any customer value mm -hmm. so you know, but that's but that's natural too as part of these things, right? Because these you know new technologies and new platforms start out very pure, 
they then get bastardized as people try to figure out how to use them and leverage them. And there's a lot of bad stuff that gets built, you know, with them. And then it crosses into another threshold, which is into a mature space where then it's like, okay, we now know how to use blockchain adequately. We know we now know how to use AI and voice and some of those things adequately. And we're not just building stupid things, right, for the sake of doing it. Virtual, um, you know, VR and AR, right? I mean, QR codes, you know, died a, a slow death, right, 10 years ago. And now the QR codes are back because most restaurants and bars, because of COVID, have QR codes on their table to access the menus, right? Um, now there's a real reason for that. 10 years ago, when some restaurants and bars tried doing that and replacing the menus with QR codes, nobody was having it, right? Um, so there's also a timing component to all of this too, of where it makes sense, right, to leverage something. Uh, but I had, a, I had a meeting a few years ago with a, a large restaurant company uh, and they were trying to figure out what to do with AR. And, and, they, and they said, well, one of the things we could do is at our franchise, um, at our franchise annual conference, we could allow people to take their picture with an augmented reality um, box of fries. Mm. And I was like, well, what's the, what's the value of that? They were like, oh, well, people would just think it's funny and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, okay, you could, you could do that. And it's kind of kitschy and it's kind of cheeky, right? But I was like, is that the purpose or are you trying to figure out some way to use AR for actual customer value, right? And isn't, it isn't just sort of this cheeky thing. And they were like, well, we really want to do that too. And it was just, it was just more evidence that companies try to take technologies and, and use them inappropriately. And then they're so invested in the time they've spent in, uh, you know, t you know, evaluating AR and sort of playing around with it. Then they're like, well, we have to do something with it. We, we've, you know, we've had eight engineers looking at it for the last two years. That's always the time if we don't do something and then they have do doing something silly, like ask for an insurance tip of the day or take a picture, you know, with, 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 you know, a augmented reality fry box. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the, the risk that, that everybody runs, including founders is, you know, that technology for the sake of tech technology use is not is not a business case and a and a business reason, and I think you've got to really think long and hard about how are we going to use this and and does it make sense um, and and how does it drive value into the company, right? If you're going to then implement a new technology as part of being trying to improve some workflow and make you more efficient, and um, I've seen a lot of startups that over time that have bought a lot of tools and a lot of systems sort of chasing, you know, a, a, a goal that they weren't sure what the goal was. It's like, let's just adopt the latest thing and let's see what that does for us without any idea of, of well, what problem are you trying to solve, right? What, do you, what are you trying, where are you trying to get to by adopting this? And it's like, well, we're just doing it because, you know, we, you know, it's cool and we might get something out of it. And it's like, you don't have that, you don't have that time to waste, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you're, you're trying to build a company if you're playing around with systems while you're trying to build your own company, I would argue that's a lot of thrashing that is probably fruitless. Really cool. So uh, what brought you to AWH? Is it the idea of you know, working with multiple products and building up multiple things? Um, or is it you know, solving problems uh, you know, with the capacity that you have? Uh, what brought you here? Yeah, it, it's really, I had been for a long time focused on building my own products and commercializing those. And then when I had the opportunity to join AWH, I thought, okay, it would be really fun to work on a whole, a whole set of problems at the same time and different products with different clients and different industries, right? And so, um, you know, that's why I joined as a partner um, was to, to ha have, to not have all my eggs in one basket necessarily, right? Trying to commercialize and build, you know, a single product, but to, to get exposure to and to help lots of, of people at the same time try to build products and solve problems. Um, so, and it's been, you know, I, all, I all will also say it's the first time that I've owned a services firm and running a services company is very different than running a product company. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's, um, services firms are really easy to start 
because all you have to do is say, I've got a skill in this and you can put up a site and you can say, yep, I'm in business. Services firms, very easy to start, incredibly hard to grow because they're so people dependent, right? And there's no scalability, right? You only generate more revenue as a services firm and you only generate more profit by growing your team. And th that is, um, there's just a lot of friction associated to that that you don't, and services firms are cash flow monsters, right? I mean, they're just ridiculous because at most services firms, finance their clients work right they pay their team to do the work they then invoice their clients and then clients pay 10 days later 30 days later 60 days later whatever it is so services firms also operate as a bank and a financing company where product companies invest in the product and then charge customers but at least you understand what the model is right you're making an investment to get you know um, future revenues and margins and to have exponential scalability services firms not only operate as banks but then it, it, inside of that there's no financial leverage right to then you know grow the company and expand the company because most services firms are then so financially leveraged because they've paid the team while they're now w working on collecting the money from clients um, so services firms are, are a very different beast than product companies. And um, it, it, and it's not one's right and one's wrong. They're just very, very different. And, and I don't think most people understand when they start a services firm of how hard services firms are to run and grow. And I actually now believe having run one for 10 years that running a services firm is actually harder than running a product company. Mm. Is it because uh, after the product uh, company, you can like eventually let go of a client, it's, it's done, we've finished the project and it's, it's yours, it's gone. Um, and you have that churn cycle to evolve and grow? Yeah, a product company, because you, you, in, you invest in the product up front, then everything else gets predictable. You, can, you know how much it's gonna cost to acquire a customer. You know what the lifetime value of your customer is. You know how to support those customers, right? You know what kind of a team size you need right as you continue to acquire customers right to then support them right so everything can get everything can get much more predictable and mm -hmm. and and much more well known so you have a better picture of the future of the business in a services firm everything is super fragile right client engagements are fragile the finances are more fragile there's no scalability because there's nothing that's repeatable right there's no intellectual property because you, you don't have a product that someone else can look at and put a value on, right? And so they're just, they're so different in virtually every way that uh, that's why I think running a services firm is actually harder because there's very little planning, there's very little forecasting, and there's very little predictability inside of services firms that most product companies, when they get to some level of viability maturity, then can then sort of rely on and capitalize on. What do you think about early companies, um, you know, doing services in order to eventually productize them or to gain the capital and capacity to build products uh, for themselves? Like, uh, you know, so if you don't have the capability to build products, you can do services in order to gain capital, to gain resources and to build what you really want. It's a mixed bag. Um, because I've seen a lot of, of startups that wanted to be product companies that did what you're, you're saying. There was an opportunity to do services early on, so they did that to generate revenue, to generate some, some cash into the business, to then fund the product. Um, the challenge there becomes that services work can become you know, sort of golden handcuffs because then that the company becomes dependent on that revenue and that services work and then they build up that, that services side of the business and that side keeps growing and then the product becomes sort of an afterthought and then they, they, they wake up like a year later and they're a services company that has like the beginnings of a product, right? Um, but now they're absolutely operationally structured as a services firm. Um, yeah. I, I've also seen services firms that attempt to build software products because they want to capitalize on some proprietary process, know-how methodology, and they, they want to increase their valuation of, of 
transitioning from a services firm to a product company, mm-hmm. and that rarely goes well because th- they they then don't have an, enough financial wherewithal to fund the development of the product while they're operating the services firm and they can't make the transition from operating a services firm to then operating a product company because those are two very different existences from a marketing perspective a sales perspective a financial perspective etc um with that said we we work with a lot of services firms at awh to help them build software products um, and it's one of our areas of verticalization. Um, and it, 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 and so it can be done. Services firms just have to understand, right, what are the components to building a software product that give them a chance of, of building it success, successfully and making that transition, transition from services to product. Um, and I think that and it's an interesting dichotomy and I write about this a little bit in my second book, th- that services firms want to be a product company to have recurring revenue and scalability and something that's proprietary. And product companies want professional services because professional services are high margin, right? Mm. So if you look at like the big software companies, IBM, Oracle, Microsoft, they have software products, but they also want the professional services because the professional services are so lucrative around mm. their products. And so it's this interesting dynamic of product companies want high margin professional services and services companies want a product to sell that becomes like a cash register for them. Yeah. Um, But making the pulling it off is is a uh, is both is both art and science to pull it off effectively. I don't know. Did that, did that answer your question? No, uh, we're going through this currently, so this this is just getting to me so hard right now. <laughs> how, how how so? What are you what are you guys experiencing as part of it? Uh, no, exactly this. We've been uh, wanting to build product, um, but we we're good at services, so we perform high end services to enterprises, um, and uh, use you know the hopes of using our capital, uh, but also of minting um, of taking our process and turning it into a product that we can productize and uh, therefore grow. Yep. Either internally or to allow other people to do that, and then um, or separately build other products, right? Gain the cap- capacity to build products. So it's just hilarious because like we're going down this pathway, and uh, you know we see the hurdles that exactly you're talking about, right? The, the the transitional shift, the knowledge and know-how to run services we have and, and we're we're great at, but to build and manage product is like it requires a different uh, 180 shift almost, right? Of skill sets and uh, thought patterns and and processes. So um, it's just funny you saying that. Um, one of the things that we have found, though, is a barrier of entry. Oh, sorry, the table's kind of shaking. The barrier of entry is um, uh, to to start has gotten so much lower because low code and uh, no code applications, right? So you can use these applications now in house, and this is what we do: is that we use like uh, tools like um, um, well, why, why am I blanking? Buffer and uh, you know Airtable. These these like low code apps you can like build and you know with very little um, training. And very little uh, kind of know-how. You can build these kind of tools. You can use in-house. You can start selling, and you can even like uh, use it to streamline your process, right? Uh, we have with clients. So we've been experimenting with these, you know, these no-code, low-code applications, and it's been, tre- it's been tremendous, right? It's boosted our uh, our cap- capabilities. It's um, it's done exactly that, like knowledge work kind of behavior, where we're now we're we're building scalable systems at a much more intelligent, more nuanced ways. Um, but you're absolutely right. It required some new learnings and new, uh, new methodologies. Well, yeah. And you're, and you're talking about something, you know, that, that, that we referenced earlier in the conversation, which is treating the company as a product. Mm-hmm. So you're using some of these no code, low code, low code tools, right. To make you more operationally effective and efficient. Right. Yeah. And the challenge with some of the no code, low code tools it, from a product perspective is if you're just going to use the product and these tools internally for operational efficiency improvements, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Right. If you start thinking about commercializing it outside of the organization as a as a real commercial product and you have to th- have things like user membership roles and permissions secure right security data security account security etc if you have any regulatory compliance issues like if you're building a healthcare product or you know you know something like that then the no code local tools 
sort of run out of runway really fast because they're good for internal operational mm. products. They're not great kernels and cores for external commercial products. And I see people trying to leverage the no-code, you know, low-code tools to create external commercial products. And then they realize, well, they don't have any administrative module around it. There's no user permissions and profile management, right? And, and then you realize, oh, geez, we've now got to build all of this. And the core that we thought we were building isn't really a core. It was really just sort of a, a prototype of what the mm -hmm. core of a product might be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's great for uh, prototyping tools. I, I do believe that. But I've been surprised to learn that um, you know through uh, through Buffer, um, um, at least but two three like hundred million dollar companies have been formed around it, um, you, you know building off of it. So um, that's that's these are product led teams. These are products that are commercially you can you can purchase now and and utilize. So I think the, there is a movement to make it more open and ended. But I think it really comes down to again how can you use them and how can you do, uh, deliver on them? Um, how can you put together other tool sets together to make it work? It, it still requires a, a bit of like product ma product knowledge, um, but you're absolutely right. There, I don't think everyone can do this for every situation. Yeah, and you know there are companies like Viva, which is really built on top of Salesforce, and Viva's become a big company, and and so lots of products have been built on top of Salesforce, for example, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it's and there's nothing wrong with that. I think the the challenge for a really early stage company building on top of someone else's platform is what is the longevity of that platform and what what is the trajectory of that platform because if you if you start building your product in your company dependent upon a third party platform mm. i mean that's just a huge dependency and a huge risk and it might turn out okay but it's also an enormous risk that that you also have to be fully aware and, and sort of conscious of the fact if that third-party platform goes in a direction that doesn't support the direction that you are going to want to go or going to need to go with your product you you might be you you might find yourself in a, in a very difficult circumstance really cool you know um i really appreciate this um ryan th thanks for opening up and and, and you know spilling your thoughts about these because this is I, I this is super, really fascinating and i think a lot of Founders go into these hurdles when they don't come at uh, these kind of problems with these kind of mind frames. And uh, one of the things I really enjoy about this podcast is being able to talk to people like yourself, you know, who's been through this a few times and, and, and have seen it. So I appreciate you coming on and appreciate your time. Uh, I know we're a little over time, but uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Enjoyed it very much. Perfect. Stick around. We'll do a quick debrief. But for everyone else who joined us, thanks. Thanks.